We are uh, back finally to our sermon series in the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, we uh, took a break. We started out uh, in the uh, Revelation and then uh, got through the end of chapter 3 and then took a little break to do our Imago Day series uh, and a series around the Incarnation for Christmas. But we are back to the book of Revelation and we are going to be in chapter 4. We're just going to pick up where we left off um, in the book of Revelation. And the hope is, I have mapped it out, and so barring any uh, unforeseen things, we will finish the book of Revelation before I uh, start my sabbatical in May. So uh, we're going to get through the whole book. Uh, I'm excited to, to get through this book with you. Um, we are now entering, however, into, uh, if, if you've been with us in the book of Revelation, you might have been uh, surprised. Maybe you had some expectations for what the book of Revelation would be like. And then we started and it felt pretty normal. It was like these little letters to churches. Well, we're about to get into the not normal parts of Revelation. Like the, the parts that everyone is like, I don't know what to do with this. There's beasts, there's dragons, there's things. What do we do with any of these things? So we're going to start walking through those pieces uh, together a little bit at a time, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a, a reset to the book of Revelation this morning. And chapter four is a great place for us to do that. Uh, but one of the things that we're going to find in the midst of the whole book of Revelation, and in particular chapter 4, is that you are not in control. That you are not in control. Now, in church, it's real easy to acknowledge, well, of course, God is in control. That makes sense. We acknowledge that. But do we actually believe it? And do we actually believe it when things don't go according to your plan? It's easy to believe that God is in control when things are going according to your plan. But when things don't go according to your plan, do you believe that God is still in control? We had to re reckon with this as a family over the holidays. We did not plan on getting COVID. We did not plan on this building having a flood. We did not plan on Christmas things being canceled. All of those things. And yet we still have to acknowledge that God is in control. What about things related to your job? Or a relationship? A difficult situation you find yourself in? Remembering some past trauma or abuse or situation, dealing with the reality of loss, dealing with hardship or suffering, struggling with some sin or struggling in some way with your mental health or your physical health, or facing persecution even, do you believe that God is still in control? Remember, all throughout the book of Revelation so far, the letters that Jesus uh, instructed John to send to these churches were to churches in struggling situations. They were in situations of suffering in which they were to acknowledge that God was in control and they were to remain faithful to God even in the midst of great pressure. So do you still acknowledge that you are okay not being on the throne of your life and not being in control, submitting to the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty? Now, a reminder of what this book is doing and not doing. This book is not a series of... Uh, uh, 
charts for us to figure out, though I'm going to show you some charts in a minute, uh, for us to figure out the exact timeline of when Jesus is going to return, who the Antichrist is, and how do we figure out exactly what's going on in modern times so that we know exactly what to expect. That's not what this book is doing. As I shared in our first sermon on this book, uh, G.K. Beale, in his commentary on Revelation, says this, the prophetic visions of Revelation can easily disguise the point that it was written as a letter to the churches, and a letter which is pastoral in nature. The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out His purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. The point of the book of Revelation is to say, even in the midst of your difficult circumstances, God is on the throne. He's still on the throne. Now, this section of, or this uh, series of prophetic visions come, as we said earlier, in this uh, sort of seven sections. And the book of, or the uh, number seven is super important in apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is, and in the book of Revelation. And seven means fullness. Uh, completeness. And so there are these seven sections, and we're going to see, I'm going to look more about this when we get into chapter 5, but this is the beginning of the second of these seven sections. And there's these time markers for us about what's going on, and these seven sections are really replaying the same time frame over and over again with increasing intensity. Uh, Chapter 4 starts in this way. Then as I looked... I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Now, you might remember some things based upon this from chapter 1. It talked about being in the Spirit. This is uh, sort of a code for, I am seeing a prophetic vision, right? John is not actually transported into heaven, but he is seeing a prophetic vision. The Lord is allowing him to see into sort of this timeless space into which the throne room of heaven is. So that in the Spirit phrase is important. The other phrase that's important is uh, that it says, Come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. Now, some folks read that and say, okay, after this means after all of the events that take place in these letters. Meaning, this is something that's happening after the church age is over. So he's going to show us just the very end of all things. Well, I don't actually think that that's what this is referring to because this phrase shows up several other times and There are several other time markers that I'll show you and ways in which you can see the way sections end with some of the same language to showcase to you, hey, we're showing the end of the world multiple times. Remember the analogy, I still haven't uh, checked my uh, source on this analogy, but it was in a lecture with Dr. Kruger, uh, my uh, uh, Hebrews to Revelation prof, and he uh, Reference somebody who said that the book of Revelation is kind of like an instant replay in a football game. It's like, you're going to see it from this angle, and then we're going to show you a different angle. And then we're going to show you a different angle, and then we're going to show you a different angle. And all of them, if you didn't know anything about instant replay, you'd be like, man, this dude caught that ball four different times. 
No, it's the same thing, just from a different angle, seeing a different piece of it. That's what the book of Revelation is like. We're going to show you this time frame from a different angle, all of these different pieces. So when it says after this, it means this is the next set of visions that you're going to see. Right? And so there is this first set, which is the letters, and now I'm going to show you this new thing. It's not necessarily this chronological order, because that's not how apocalyptic literature works. We anticipate, because most of us don't you know, sit at home in the evenings with a cup of uh, tea and read apocalyptic literature, so we expect something to walk through chronologically, but that's not how this book works. So... This is uh, the next set of vision. And it starts actually very similar to the first vision, which is with this picture of the throne room of heaven. Remember, John starts this by saying, this voice I heard, Jesus speaking to me, and then I saw one that looked like the Son of Man and walks through this. Now, to, to give you a little bit of a, a framework for what we're looking at in terms of time, I want to go back and show you these charts that I made earlier beforehand. So the time frame of the book of Revelation, everyone agrees that at some point Revelation is going to show the second coming of Jesus. And certainly there is the first coming of Jesus, which is uh, the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, his earthly ministry, all of those things, right? Jesus comes to earth in the incarnation, lives a perfect life, dies a death on a cross, and is resurrected and then ascends into heaven. It's the first coming of Jesus. He promises that he's going to come again. And when he comes again, it will be the end of all things. And usher his kingdom. Bring all those who are trusting in Jesus into the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. And bring judgment upon those uh, who disobey the Lord and are sinful. right? And not looking to Jesus to save them from their sins. Bringing that judgment. That's the second coming of Jesus. Now, There are some views of Revelation that say it's only dealing with this very early spot. And everything before the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And all of it can be related to these things. It's all about immediate things that are happening. We don't think that that's uh, that's not the view I take uh, in this. The other view, the more popular view, is that it only refers to this tiny sliver of things at the end of all things. And so, if that's the case, you would look at this as a chronological account, right? New heavens and new earth is at the very end, you know, Revelations 21 and 22. And so, we're just going to walk through and this thing is going to happen and then this thing is going to happen and then this thing is going to happen. And often, that's why we are so confused when we read the book of Revelation because you're like, well, I haven't seen a dragon come out of the sea yet, so I guess this isn't for me. Like, this doesn't apply to me. When the dragon comes out of the sea, I know what to do. It's probably run, but like, I know what to do here. But until that happens, this probably doesn't apply to me, right? Which is why we sort of ignore this book or... We hyper-focus on it to figure out, when is the dragon coming out of the sea? Because i got to know. But I don't think that's actually what's happening either. Actually, the book of Revelation covers this entire period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That it actually showcases, in this way, what we call the inter-advent period. 
or the church age. Inter-advent meaning, right, we just celebrated Advent, the first coming of Jesus. There's a second Advent, the second coming of Jesus. And this time in between is the church age. This is the time that we live in. Right? And Jesus is very clear about this, actually, in his teachings, because he talks very much about the end of all, uh, the end times, right? And not only that, but Paul, when Paul uses the phrase, the uh, latter days, or the end of time, or these phrases, he's referring to this time. The last days are happening right now. There's nothing left to happen before the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth but the return of Jesus. It's the only thing left to happen. And so we are in the last days right now. So that means we would interpret this book a little differently and see things a little bit more figuratively or metaphorically because that's actually how apocalyptic literature is supposed to work, right? We're to see things more metaphorically and figuratively. And so we're going to walk through those things uh, together as we, as we look at this. But what you got to know is that this means that we're going to see a lot of we're going to see a lot of things in this uh, in this book that are going to be confusing, and so we're going to have to unpack exactly what those things mean. But it's referring to this same time frame, which is where the thousand years. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the thousand years is another uh, way of saying this same time frame as well as there's other uh, phrases in the book of Revelation, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. All of these have important significance, metaphorically, but not literally. And all of these phrases are going to show up in these different ways throughout all of the different visions. And one of the keys to this is you're going to see it looks like the world ends like five different times in the book of Revelation. So you're like, wait a second. He's destroying this? Like, I thought half the earth was already destroyed. How can a third of the earth be destroyed after half of the earth is destroyed? Because it's just, it's not, it's not this chronological thing, right? It's this, it's more like this. It's more like a spiral, right? It's more like we're going to show you this thing, and then we're going to show you it from a different angle, and then we're going to show you it from a different angle. It's not just this chronological thing between the two comings. Uh, in the book of Revelation. So all of that is sort of background uh, for us because we're about to get into the increasing intensity. And there are points, perhaps, that you might feel like this as we're reading through this book. Like, I don't know what's happening. Everything is spinning. And there are more dragons. What do we do with them, right? And so you might be confused in the midst of this, which is why this section is actually super critical. Because it's going to show us The point. The point of the whole book. So let's read chapter 4 here. Or parts of it here. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before, remember this is the voice of Jesus, spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were, clothed all, they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. All right. I want to walk through as we, we're going to just take this book, or this chapter in chunks, and walk through and explain some of the things that are going on so that we can understand the point of these things. He looks into heaven and sees that a door is open. Now, this, if you, if you read through different prophetic visions in the Old Testament, you're going to see, uh, remember, we talked about the book of Revelation actually alludes to the Old Testament more often than any other book in the New Testament. Uh, John is continuously uh, alluding to places in the Old Testament in which there are visions of the throne room of heaven or visions of things in heaven. And so this feels very similar to that. And the door being open is the, the, the temple in heaven. We're seeing this picture of a temple in heaven. And it has a throne in it. Right? And so one of the things that this book is already doing is combining these two themes throughout the history of Israel, which is the kings and the priests. Combining both the priesthood and the king together which is what Jesus declares himself to be. He is the king and the priest. So there, there is this doorway open into heaven to see the temple, and on the th- in the temple is a throne, representing the rule of God. Now, who is on the throne? Now, I think that given the way that 4 and 5, as we'll get to chapter 5, works together, I think we can say with pretty good confidence that this is a depiction of God the Father on the throne. And there's a few keys to this. Anytime John sees Jesus, he describes him in very uh, uh, human terms, right? He calls him the Son of Man. Or he describes him in figurative terms like the Lamb, which we're going to see in just a moment. But in this one... He describes who's on the throne, not with any sort of physical form, but by talking about his brilliance. Because God the Father doesn't have a physical form. God is spirit. So he describes what is on the throne in any way that he can possibly figure out how to get language for you to see and understand what he is seeing. Which is gemstones. Brilliant gemstones. I'm trying to think of the most beautiful color, the most radiant thing, the the thing that reflects light the most. That's what I'm trying to think of. That's what it looked like, right? All the time throughout uh, prophetic visions, you're going to get this uh, description of things where it feels like the prophet is like, well, it's kind of like this. Well, it's a little bit more like this. It's a little bit. They don't know how to describe it because they are seeing God. So they're trying to find language that describes exactly what they're seeing. So he really is describing radiance and brilliance, not really a form like the Son of Man, which he already described earlier. Remember? He talked about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, uh, this one who uh, had feet like bronze and had white hair and all these pieces, right? Which were all... uh, metaphorical things describing who Jesus is. And so, he's seeing the throne room of God and God himself on the throne and he is brilliant. Surrounding the throne are these 24 elders who are also on thrones. 
Now these represent, they can represent a, a number of different things, but I think we can say with pretty good confidence that these represent the fullness of God's people. Remember, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and there were 12 apostles. Later on in the book of Revelation, it's going to refer to these 24 as the patriarchs and the apostles, right? So these are representing not the actual uh, 12 patriarchs or the actual 12 apostles, but these are representative of them to showcase the fullness of God's people around the throne. These 24 elders are the fullness of God's people surrounding the throne, And there is lightning and thunder that happens in the midst of this. Remember when Moses met, when we were in the book of Exodus, when Moses met with the Lord on the mountain, it was covered in fire on the mountain, and it was so brilliant that the people of Israel were like, you go, Moses, we're going to stay back here. Like, we are too terrified to come into the presence of God. One of the points of the book of Revelation, remember, one of the ways in which this book uses language is to say, sometimes if I tell you God is in control and he is on the throne and he is brilliant and terrifyingly holy, like, okay. But if I tell you that his throne has lightning and thunder coming from it constantly, that brings a little bit of a different feel to it, doesn't it? And for John, certainly seeing this brings a little bit of a different feel to it because the book of Revelation is to tell the church, wake up! You cannot be on the side of the empire. You've got to be faithful to this one who is on the real throne. And you get complacent. When you think about God as just some sort of like, well, you know, the big man upstairs or the, the you know, this... Uh, way distant being, that makes it easy to get complacent. But when he is brilliant like gemstones on the throne with lightning and thunder coming before him and 24 elders before him on thrones with gold crowns, you know that he is majestic and not to be messed with. He is majestic. And in front of him are seven torches representing the sevenfold Spirit of God. Again, this is a representation of the Holy Spirit. Not that there are seven Holy Spirits, but that seven means the fullness, right? So it is the sevenfold Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is in front of the throne. We're going to see as soon as we get into chapter 5 that Jesus is also present here. We're going to see the Trinity in the throne room together. Continuing on, in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. If you remember when Moses went up to see God on the mountain, there's this, uh, this, the, the sky above him looked like this sea of glass above him, right? All of these Old Testament references to the way in which the throne room looks are at play in what John is seeing. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. This is where it starts to get a little trippy. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings. And their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord 
God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. This phrase, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come, is one that is repeated kind of throughout the book. And we've already seen it in the earlier chapters. These living beings are similar and yet slightly different from beings that we see in the book of Ezekiel and then also in Isaiah. When Isaiah sees into the throne room of heaven, there are these creatures, these angels with wings, uh, six wings as well. And so it feels like there's some sort of combination between these two things. And maybe this is, uh, uh, so in uh, Ezekiel and in uh, Isaiah, we have uh, seraphim and cherubim, right? These uh, angelic beings, and maybe this is some sort of combination of them or some uh, other high set of angels uh, that are present before the Lord. There isn't this. Uh, the idea behind Revelation is not to give you a taxonomy of angels, uh, but to give you a picture into heaven. And so we shouldn't press the details too far, but the reality is they stand before God and they shout, Holy, 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 all the time. They have eyes all over their wings, meaning they they can see all things, right? They can see everything in the universe, and yet they want to stand right here and declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, the, The fact that they are living beings with these different faces on them, It's similar to the book of Ezekiel, and what it seems to be is not necessarily a literal description of these creatures, but seems to be representative of all of creation, right? They're representing all these different types of creation. You have human, you have uh, eagle, you have ox, uh, you have lion, right? You have these different facets of creation. And so the combination of these living beings and the elders, right, is to say all of creation is doing, or these uh, creatures are doing what all of creation should be doing. Worship. In the throne room of heaven, representatives from all of creation and representatives from all of God's people are doing what? They are worshiping God. That's the point of this chapter. And indeed, the point of the whole book. John's getting a picture into heaven to showcase what it is that we are created for and what it is we are to submit our lives doing, and that is worshiping God. He goes on to say the last uh, two verses of this. Chris, you want to switch that? It's not switching for me. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Just looked at creation quite a bit in our Imago Dei series. The reality is, That these 24 elders declare what the Scriptures declare and what we have declared in this, that your purpose is worship. That you were created for worship. Created to worship God. And that He deserves our worship 
Because He created all things, and He created exactly what He pleased to create. Meaning, a number of things, but one of those things means you are not a mistake. You are not a mistake. The reality is, as we looked at the Imago Dei and what it means to be made in the image of God, we said that the pinnacle of all creation is human beings. And what this is saying is that God deserves worship because He created what pleased Him. And you are the pinnacle of that creation. You please Him. You are not a mistake. And because you were created, because, you, because God did all the things that He did, He deserves worship. He deserves worship and honor. There's another thing that this means for us. It means that you are not God. One of the points of this book is to declare To ask the question, who will you worship? And if the answer is God on the throne, the real triune God on the throne, that means the answer can't be yourself. If God is really on the throne, that means you are not. You are not God. You are not in control. And you are not at the center of the universe. There is a center to the universe. There is an organizing thing to the entire universe. There is one who is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. And it is God. The good news of this passage is that you are not God, but there is a God who is glorious. A God who is on the throne. A God who is in control. A God who is at the center of the universe who is glorious and worthy of all praise and honor. And this lines up with everything we said in the Imago Dei about your purpose. That your purpose in being created in the image of God is to worship God by enjoying Him. Your purpose is worship. So why should you worship God? Well, because He's holy. Because He's terrifyingly holy. His throne is surrounded by lightning and thunder constantly. He is glorious. He is more brilliant than anything you have ever seen. These gemstones cannot reflect the glory of His brilliance, but they're the best description that John can come up with to describe how brilliant He is. Like looking into the sun constantly but having the capacity to look into the sun and not have your eyes burned out. He is worthy, and it is why you were created. This is really important. Because there's so much else going on in this book. There are so many other pieces to this book. And everything else in this book depends upon this vision. This one and and chapter 5 and the way that they come together. Everything else in this book about not siding with the empire, which is very relevant for our lives today because everything about the kingdoms of this world wants you to side with them, wants you to be with them, 
wants you to give your allegiance to them, wants you to give your heart to them, everything about you they want. Everything in this book about not being on the side of empire, about not giving your ultimate allegiance to the kingdoms of this world, everything about not caring more about your economic well-being than your obedience to the suffering way of love demanded by King Jesus and His example, everything about the ethical concerns of justice and mercy and suffering in love to the world, all of it, all of those things mean nothing if you get this wrong. If you get this part wrong, those things mean nothing. Christianity is not only about a set of ethical concerns. It's not only about a commitment to justice and love of neighbor and not siding with the empire and being faithful. It's not only those things. It is first and foremost about the revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus. And everything else flows from that. Now, all of those things do actually flow from that, right? If you say, no, 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 we're going to stop with the worship of Jesus and not care about justice and love of neighbor and not care about all these other pieces and not care about uh, whether your allegiance is to the empire or not, you've met a different Jesus. Because Jesus cares about those things. It absolutely flows from those things. Submitting to the ethics of love and suffering in the way of Jesus. However, if it doesn't start with worship, you've missed the whole thing. Everything we do as a church, all of the pieces that we are committed to in justice and mercy in this city, in, uh, in caring about economic justice and racial justice, in caring about uh, serving the poor and, and uh, love of our neighbor, all of those pieces, in creating uh, a multi-ethnic church community, all of that stuff flows from the worship of God on the throne. And if it doesn't flow from there, it doesn't matter. It's not what the church is doing. It's not what Jesus has called us to do because He's on the throne. John is saying, I am getting a picture of the most important thing that's happening in the universe right now. And it's that God is being worshipped by representatives of all of creation and all of God's people. This is the thing. It's the first and foremost thing in our lives. Well, how do we do that? Because I don't know about you, but I don't have six wings where I can fly with two and cover my eyes and my feet with two and shout holy, holy, holy all the day because, you know, I got things to do, right? I can't just stand here and say holy, 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 right? How do we actually worship God with all of our lives? Well, the rest of this book is going to show us how to do that. That's the point. But there's a few things that we can glean from this passage. One is to honor Him. To honor the Lord. Real, actual worship. Right? When we gather together, we don't sing to the Lord because we're like, hey, this, uh, you know, we, we think this sounds particularly great. Especially if you stand next to me. That's not what you're thinking. Right? Oh, this sounds awesome. This is like a fun concert. No, it's because Jesus deserves our worship. Guys, this is kind of a weird thing that we do when we gather for worship. We gather together and sing together, right? 
Even without musicians sometimes, right? Like we did last week. Why do we, why do we still do it? Even if we don't have a musician. Why do we still do it? Because Jesus deserves our worship. He deserves all of our lives. And so we actually worship because He's worthy. Because He is glorious. Because He's on the throne. Second way we worship God is by obeying Him. He's on a throne. He's king. He deserves your obedience. In the midst of struggling against sin, right? Doing what God tells us not to do and not doing what He tells us to do. It's helpful to remember that God sits on a throne. That He is king. That He is ruler. Now, we we'll talk about His grace in just a second. But His grace is only good if He's King who is holy and terrifying. It's what makes His grace so wonderful. Because He is King. He is worthy of your obedience. And He is right in His judgment. Because He's King of the universe. We then declare His holiness and worthiness. That's the other way we worship Him. The other reason we gather here for worship, right? When we gather every week for worship, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this, but I, I've said this recently here a couple of times. I have like four sermons. They just are on repeat in different sections of the Bible, right? It's not because I am particularly like uh, uh, not, not working hard <laughs> or looking at it. It's because there's only four sermons in the book. Worship God, right? I, I mean, there's kind of only one, but it, right? It's like, over and over again. Why do we do this over and over again? Because we leave this place and we forget that our lives are about worshiping God. And so we have to come back here every week to remember and be reminded that our lives are to be submitted in worship to God. Because He is glorious. Because He is King. And so we declare to the world around us that He is worthy of worship. We declare to the world around us that He is all holy and glorious. Then we allow Him, the other way we worship is we allow Him to be God on the throne. We submit ourselves to the reality that He is sovereign and in control and we are not. We submit to Him as King. This is a hard one, guys, because life doesn't go the way we want it to go. We experience things that, we th- that, that are wrong. We experience hardship and suffering. Remember what Jesus told the churches already. Faithfulness in the face of suffering. Perseverance to the end. That's the one who gets the crown. He's on the throne. He knows what he's doing. And it's often that we look at the throne room of heaven and we say, we don't think that you're doing a very good job and we don't think you know what you're doing. And he says in the midst of that, trust me. Just come in and see. Come here. He doesn't say, trust me in this sense of like, you don't get access to what I'm doing. You just submit, right? Like you're a creature. Get out of here. 
No, he says, submit to me by coming near. Come near. You want to see what I'm doing? Come close. Come into the throne room. Come. Right? What does Hebrews tell us? We can come with bold access into the throne room of God. Why? Because of what we're going to see in chapter 5. John looks around and sees another person standing there by the throne. He looked like a lamb who had been slain. And they say of this lamb, they sing a new song about him. You want to switch to the next one, Chris? And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll, speaking to the lamb, and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The way that we worship God is to come into the throne room through the person and work of Jesus. Submitting to Jesus and what He has done. Then we are welcomed in to worship God. Even in the midst of our hardship. Even in the midst of our suffering. Even exactly as we are. People for God ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation right that means he took the ones that needed rescued this call to come and to worship god the way in which we honor him and worship him is by coming exactly as we are to him not cleaning up our lives and getting it all worked out so that we can be worthy to come into the throne we can't be worthy to come into the throne he makes us worthy through the blood of Jesus. And so this whole book, all of it, is about you worshiping God through the person and work of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation, the call for you is to come to Jesus. Admit your sins. Come to Jesus and be welcomed by Him. And for all of us who are trusting in Jesus, the reminder for us today is that you are called to worship God on the throne and you are called to do that through the person and work of Jesus. Let's commit ourselves to that as we walk through this book. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we want to sing along with the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We declare that you are holy, Father, and we are thankful that you have welcomed us into your family, into your kingdom, that you have welcomed us into the very throne room of heaven to worship you because of the work of Jesus. Jesus, would you be honored in all that we say and do, we pray in Christ's name.